Welcome to the Brew Time Podcast. This is all about doing content differently. I'm your host, Fiona, and this week I am having a virtual brew with Kay Jones from The Historian. We chat all about hidden history and narrative and storytelling and bringing history to life. There is so much you can learn about how to tell the story of your brand and business from how Kay approaches history. It's a really interesting discussion and her posts on social media are absolutely superb. So please do go and check them out after this podcast episode to get a taste of what we are talking about. So I'm going to let you get into this conversation now. How did you go from being a history teacher to the historian? I love that name, the historian. That is an excellent pun. Thank you. And I can't take credit for that. Um, the wonderful Sophie Cross came up with that on my behalf. Um, she's so clever. Um, but it's really nice because it kind of demonstrates what I'm trying to do, trying to flip things around on the head and kind of rethink the way that we do history. Um, how I got there is a long story that I will try and be brief about. Um I did my teacher training pretty late. I was 31, so it's a good few years ago now. So I had a career before that. Um, I'd been an independent freelance historian, writing research and so on. And, I, you know, looking back, I was a bit of an idealist, really. I thought I was going right, to step in there and change that world. I really did. Um, bless. It's, it's sweet, really. Um, but I was interested as well to see, you know, what's changed, what hasn't changed. Because, you know, when I did history at school, it wasn't great. I'm not going to lie. Um, there were, you know, tokenistic mentions of women. There were no black people at all. So I was interested. I was really interested to see. And I thought, yeah, I've got the skills. I've got the experience. I've got the passion. You know, let, let's do it. Um, but when I got there... I didn't quite fit in 100%, if I'm honest. Um, and I had a bit of an experience in a classroom up in Bolton where we were teaching enslavement. And I had one of these weird situations where it's almost like you step out of your own body and see yourself in the room. And I thought this, you know, you've got a lot of black children in this classroom this is the only time that they're going to see themselves represented in this curriculum. That's not really good enough, is it? What are you going to do about that, Kay Jones? Um, and <laughs> I thought, hmm, I don't know. I'm going to, I'm going to have to do something about that. Um, and then when I finished my training, it was pretty tricky to get a permanent post anywhere. So I was on temp contracts and um, that was, you know, pretty nice. And then when COVID hits, I was asked by an old contact, an old um, writing contact, to work on a diverse history of the US. So I started doing that because I was furloughed. And then that just really snowballed. From that came so many more opportunities. Like we had the Black Lives Matter protests as well. And then it was really a decision for me, do I want to continue doing 50 hours a week chasing my own tail having yes having impact but having impact only in one room or do I want to really see where things can go do I really want to push it and I chose the latter and it's like one of those moments where you know when you do the thing you're always meant to do everything just falls into place 
and that's just what happened. I am completely blessed to be doing this. Um, and and that's yeah, that that's the rest is history, as they say. <laughs> I think that's brilliant though. That's a brilliant story of how you've taken something, you've seen an opportunity, you've taken something, and you've taken the opportunity when it's come during COVID mm-hmm. to create something that genuinely makes a difference in not just kids' lives but other people's lives. Mm-hmm. And I feel that you're doing this through storytelling as well, because I, absolutely, I I sit and read your post and go, oh my God, I know nothing. I was taught nothing in school. <laughs> I know nothing of history. I know nothing of women's history. And then you put, you like your post this week about the people who write and then turn the paper around and write. Mm-hmm. Like, how, how have you taken, because if we saw that in a museum, I'd be like, great, it's a piece of paper with loads of writing on it. But you've taken that and turned it into a story. So what is your process? by bringing this stuff to life and making it relevant well i'm i'm really glad to hear that you enjoy them um yeah the cross-written letter is really interesting honestly i think it's just about context i think the issue with a lot of history books the issue with a lot of museums they all assume that you've got a certain level of knowledge that most people don't have um and i think that's a big problem I don't make any assumptions about my audience I don't assume that they know all about cross-written letters I wouldn't just put a picture up there and say this is a cross-written letter from 1815 because that's just there's no context there what can you hook into right the word history contains the word story the clue is in the name we need to try and build in that context not make assumptions about what people know and and try and relate things in some way to their lives like most of us have experience of writing letters some more than others depending on age but it's all about trying to find things that people can relate to that's why I tend not to do posts about or really ever read anything about top-down history I'm not that interested in kings and queens I'm not that interested about broad social themes politics I care about the ordinary person at the bottom. What were they doing? You know, the Industrial Revolution is one of my favourite periods, but I don't care about things like the spinning jenny. I don't care about, you know, white privileged men who invented things. I'm not interested in those. I'm interested in how those inventions impacted ordinary people, right, women like me. How did that change things? And it's that story that underpins that, that I think resonates with people because they can in some way relate to it. And that is the story, isn't it? It's no one, it's not spinning Jenny. We don't care about that. It's how it impacted on somebody else's life. It's not that far removed from politics really, is it? No one gives two hoots about politics, but they care about how it impacts their lives. They care about the stories of the people. Exactly. That's, that's, you've got to get down to that person level that bottom-up perspective if if you're not there you're not speaking to people you know the the brain neurologically is hardwired for stories that's how we've built societies that's how we've connected with others that's how we moved from being you know single people on the roam to um having these small societies we had to connect with people on on some way and storytelling is how we do that that's never going to change that's we are hardwired it's in our dna to love a story and if you can bring that into, you know, whether you're trying to tell me about letter writing in the 1840s or you're trying to sell me a kitchen, 
I need to know the story is there and I need to know that you're thinking about me as a person. Otherwise, I'm not interested. I'm not going to buy into it. Kids are the same. You know, it's the same in the classroom. But you've just, you've done it there. Like you, if you'd have said to someone, oh, this is how letters were written in the 1840s, no one's interested in that. Mm -hmm. But showing a picture and the way you tell it, it invites conversation. And I think that, because it's not just telling stories, it's having conversations. Like all your blogs, all your content, all invite that conversation. So is that intentional or is it just the way you write? Um, I think it's probably a bit of both. Um, I think, I, you know, naturally at heart, I'm a writer. That's what I love to do. Um, but also you know, there's, there's other aspects in there. You know, for me, history is not a a boring, dry subject about people who lived ages ago. It's not disconnected from the here and the now. To me, history is about creative meaning. It's about where you've come from, your identities, who you are as a person. We derive intense meaning from that. You know, every decision that you've ever made has precedence, not just in your life, but in your parents' life, in your friends' life, where you live. Everything is just a living, breathing story. And all you've got to do is hook into that in some way. And that's what I'm looking for all the time. So to some extent, yeah, it's intentional, but that's just my view of the past anyway. I don't see it as, you know, boring textbooks. To me, history is living, it's breathing, it's right here, it's who we are, it's, it's our world even if we're not always conscious of it. So a lot of what you do is pull out these, what I consider hidden stories. It's not stuff that we're taught in school. It's not stuff that is obvious and in front of us. So how do you find that? Where do you find that? That's a good question. Um, Well, I read a lot. I won't lie. I read extensively. I read a lot. And I read a lot of random things as well. Um, I go, shall we say, direct to source. So... I think a lot of people don't realise in this digital age, like how much access we all have to archives, how much access we have to books that were written pre-1900 or, you know, whatever period you're interested in. Granted, some of it is subscription-based. You do have to pay for it. Like I have a subscription to the British Newspaper Archive. I have a Find My Past subscription as well. So if I'm interested in something, if I have a question... That's where I go. I will get on, you know, Google Books is a wonderful resource because most of, uh, most books that were written before like 1900, they're now public domain, they're free, you can download them. Um, I'm reading at the moment a dictionary um, of mental health disorders from 1858. That's hours of fun. Um <laughs> just because I was interested and I'm not going to go to a historian, I'm going to go direct and find exactly what I need. But honestly, browsing like newspapers, is just, I mean, the stuff in there is great. You know, the adverts for pink pills that cure gout as well as a broken leg. And you just find so much in there. I mean, I've amassed, oh, I don't even want to say how much stuff I've amassed over the last 15 years. It is, I need a second house just to put all this stuff in. <laughs> so much so much just turn one house into a museum yes yes that's not a bad idea um and it might mean that I can actually get some of this stuff out there as well because I do keep thinking you know you've got to do something with all this stuff you found you, there, I is, could... 
there is precedence for this with the Vagina Museum. Oh, I love that. I love that place so much. Yeah. Yeah, I really could because I do have a lot, you know, now, like, I'm trying to be more organised. I use um, Notion, you know, the mm-hmm. app, the residence yeah. calendar on there now to try and put things into um, categories, tag them together. Um, but, yeah, because I do read a lot, I do find a lot. So that's my system that isn't particularly well organised, but I'm trying to do better. <laughs> but I do like that your answer to this question is I read a lot. And maybe if people read more, mm-hmm. then they would come across these stories that aren't obvious and isn't things we were taught in school. Yeah, because they are there, honestly. I mean, they are there in their millions. I can't can't emphasise it enough. And I mean, you can find all sorts of stuff on Google if you just change your searched box and put in the filter pre-1900. The stuff you will find is amazing and like I say it's all free access um and you get to go down you know so many rabbit holes that you never get out of I'm still there I spend most of my time in the 19th century in fairness probably more than I do in the 21st <laughs> it's simpler time <laughs> I just like it there yeah I like it there a lot <laughs> there's no Instagram or Twitter there no it's just so much easier uh yeah it's it is really all about reading uh, yeah it is so I, I want to talk about the historian as well. I'm mm-hmm. going to accidentally call it the historian, so I'm going to apologise in advance <laughs> now. Um, what, what is the impact you want to create with the historian? Well, that is a question. I have big plans, big grand plans. I um, like hearing big plans. Big plans. Um, I suppose, in no particular order, I'd like to write a history of patriarchy from its development in ancient Mesopotamia to present day, see how far we've come and not come, what, what work is left to do. Um, I want to completely rewrite every key stage of the history curriculum from key stage one all the way up. Um, there are about five books I'm, I've started writing, shall we say, and I'd like to finish. Uh, and then if there's time, maybe I'll do my own podcast. <laughs> Oh my goodness, it needs a podcast telling the stories. <laughs> that would be one way to get all this material out. It really would, because I've just, it's, yeah, it's countless. But this is why, you know, I spoke to you, didn't I, about different ways of, of working with content? Because, you know, I do have an awful lot of stuff that I want to get out. And I do really like the concept, the idea of not just doing books, but, you know, serializing things in newsletters. Like, that's how... Um, Writers did things back in the day in the 19th century. They were published in newspapers. You got a chapter a week. So the whole country was gripped, you know, while reading Dickens' latest or whatever. And I really like, you know, little ideas like that because I think sometimes there are so many people who love history, but they're maybe put off a little bit when they go to Waterstones and it's a 600-page book and it's got Latin in it and there's an assumption that you have a base layer of 13th century chivalry um because it is it is like that let's not lie um so yeah that's something I'm really interested in is just looking and investigating different ways different ways we can do things to get that message out there and to get that connection with people and I like that idea of serialization and I'm sorry if this is you your website that I'd read it from but 
it was the story of Dickens when he was doing A Christmas Carol and there were people waiting on the docks in New York for the books to be shipped yeah. over because mm-hmm. they were so excited to find out how it finished. And Yeah. Funnily enough, I was speaking to somebody a few days ago about this. You know, when um, Oliver Twist came out, it was serialised. And when Nancy was killed, apologies if you haven't read it and I've just ruined it, um, <laughs> apparently the whole country was in, like, national mourning, everyone united on that day because nobody knew that that would happen to Nancy. They were devastated. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. It's, it's like EastEnders, isn't it? Literally, it's like Victorian EastEnders. <laughs> See, I think there's something to be said for like how those serials work in the sense of storytelling and tracking what happens and going through these emotional loops mm. and that makes them relatable. And you don't see so much of it now. No, no, you don't. Um, and I think everyone, like I say, everyone just assumes with history that you've got to write a really long book for it to be of value, for it to be... Um, scholarly and academic Um, and I just I'm just not down with that I just like the idea of turning it all around on its head Um, because it's like with GCSE history you know it's so heavily geared around essay writing and I've been in rooms I've been in those conversations where we might have a child who has additional needs and isn't particularly um, literate and they really want to do history because they love stories. Because like I say, we all love stories. It's an evolutionary thing. And it's like, well, they can't do it because, you know, they won't survive the exam. And yes, it's a valid point. And yes, we shouldn't set children up to fail. But to me, like access to history is like a human right. It's like food and drink, knowing who you are and where you, where you come from. And I think maybe if, if the discipline did experiment a little bit with that 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 would filter down and that would be you know some really great work that could be could be achieved getting more kids interested and and not setting them up to fail and you know there is more to being a historian than writing shed loads of essays like it's not really what it's about and I think that that message doesn't come across strong enough I think my, my email questions to you that I might mention how interminably boring I find some museums. Mm-hmm. There is a certain museum in London where the kids want to go every time, and I'm like, oh, really? Because it's just <laughs> a bunch of stuff in glass cases, and you yeah. only want to go so you can go to the cafe, which isn't really the point of a museum. And I just, I used to walk around them and go, where's the story behind this? Where are you, You're showing me this thing. You tell me what it is. Great. What does it even mean to me? But the way you describe it is... You tell the story behind that. And if kids aren't doing that in school, how can they ever find any sort of passion about this stuff? Yeah, you're right. Like you have to make it relatable and you have to give the context. You cannot make assumptions about what people know. Um, You just can't do it. Like I, you know, apologies if you read this in the newsletter once, but um, I was asked to teach um, a unit on the Industrial Revolution um, at high school in Salford. And like, you know, I... This is like me in mega nerd, nerd mode. Like I'm so excited. I'm like, yes, we're doing industrial revolution. Um, and I get told, you know, I've got to teach the lessons off the system. That's that's fine. You know, I can work with that. That's fine. But when I actually looked at lesson one on the system, it was the agricultural revolution. 
So I'm thinking, well, we live in Salford. We don't have any farms here. Most of the children um, are working class. I don't really, how am I going to sell this to them? And I knew as well, it was kind of centered all around um, growing turnips. And I thought most of the kids here have never even seen a turnip, let alone, how can I get them to buy into the changes in turnip farming? Like even I'm not interested and I am a historian. If If you've switched me off, it's bad. It's really bad. But of course, you know, I plan the lesson, do my best. I try and get a turnip from Tesco and Aldi. They don't have any. It's really annoying, but we do it anyway. And, you know, 10 minutes in, exactly as I knew it would be, the first kid puts the hand up, this what's a turnip. <laughs> and, you know, like, if you don't have that, it, you don't have that right, I suppose, cultural capital, then you're not going to relate to it. And too often we assume that every single person is a white privileged man and, and that, he, that everyone's packing the same cultural capital as him. And that's just not true. You know, and and, that seems such a shame as well in Salford with the Industrial Revolution. Oh my God, I know. <laughs> You've got all this look, history in textiles. We look out the window and there are like five factories and I'm thinking, and I've got to teach a lesson on turnips. <laughs> what, what madness is this? What world is this? It doesn't make any sense to me. You know, use what you've got. Use what the kids walk past every day. Talk about the house. A lot of them live in these old miners' cottages as well. Like, let's talk about these. That's a story. Let's get the kids to find out what was here before we were. That Those are stories that people buy into. And when kids buy into something and they are engaged, they do better. It's about their achievement, you know, as, as much as affirming who they are. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you don't do the historian. It's not just you on your own, is it? You collaborate with other people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So how important is that collaboration? I guess in your business, but also in your life. Oh, it's everything. It is everything. The biggest lesson I've learned is that you cannot do it all on your own. You'll never have the impact alone. You have to reach out to people. And I think the second that you are really honest about who you are and what you're about and are proud to step into that, you will find your tribe 100%. You find the right people. And, um, you know, once you are with other people collaborating, opportunities just open up. But you've got to be confident to say what you're about. You know, you've got, that's what you need. And then everything just falls into place. It's so important. That totally feeds into my next question. Because when I was doing my research on you, I was like, oh, you're part of the Global Equality Collective. Mm-hmm. And I, well, as I said, I didn't instantly know you were vegan. Being someone who talks about veganism a lot, mm-hmm. I found that really interesting. But how important is it that your values drive what you do? Because what you do talk about is stuff that's very aligned to my way of thinking. Yeah. I think values are everything. If you don't have really strong values and you don't let your values lead what you're doing in not just in your business but in your life it's like getting in your car and just going for a drive you're not going anywhere you're not going to really achieve things you're not you're going to miss opportunities like you you have to be driven by a vision you have to be driven by values and then you can find the right people and do the work that needs to be done like i am so clear on what mine are 
I'm so clear on what my mission is. It is about raising that historical consciousness, getting people to see that connection between past and present. To me, like I say, history is a basic right. And it is right now the most important social justice work we can do. If we cannot think about people from the past equitably, we can't think about dead people in that way, then we have not got a cat in hell's chance of building a more equitable future, right? We're just not going to. It's, it, it seems so obvious to me. And leading from that, I just, yeah, find the right people, get the right work. I'm just doing the things I'm supposed to be doing. And, and yeah, and you've got to be led by your values all the time. And it's okay if your values change as well, I think. Um, but you've, they should be front and centre, like wear them, wear them on your sleeve. It's all good. Yeah, totally agree. Um, and I guess it's all about humanising, humanising history. Uh-huh. Um, and I can't really talk about this without asking your opinion of the National Trust and what they're facing at the moment, because it's such a big news story. Yeah. So how do you feel towards the arguments that are going on either side, because it feels a bit like the academics and the historians are just kind of stuck in the middle of a war that's going on around them that doesn't even need to, sorry, I'm taking sides there, war that doesn't need to exist. <laughs> yeah. In case you're not sure what side I'm on. This. <laughs> yeah, of course. Oh, it's, it's so sad. It's so sad to see how divisive this is these culture wars that you know don't just exist within places like the national trust but you know in the curriculum as well like i don't know if you saw the week last week the you know the new education secretary doesn't want terms like white privilege to be used in the classroom um it does at times feel a bit like an attack on all sides i don't believe that history should be politicized because it belongs to everybody and I don't believe that any one group's history is more important or more valid than anyone else's. Uh, you know, and I obviously support all this work that's being done. I'm, I'm really happy to see the likes of the National Trust having these really sensitive, really mindful conversations. Um, and I guess I would just say to the people who feel kind of threatened by it that this isn't an either-or scenario History isn't a finite resource. There is space for everyone. There's space for more perspectives. And actually, if you really do care about historical accuracy, you'll support this work because at present, what we have is, it's like a jigsaw with most of the pieces missing, right? We've got the white, male, privileged, Christian, heterosexual, European narrative there, really important at the centre of the world. And they actually only account for less than 30% of the population. So basically 70% of our jigsaw pieces are missing. Now that's not going to make a very good jigsaw, is it? It is not going to make a very good picture. So if you, you know, if you are a purist and you do really care about accuracy, then this is work you can get on board with. And again, it's not about saying one group is more important than the other. It's just about learning as much as we can about the past and, Seeing it from other people's perspectives is interesting and it's, it's a chance for us to all really challenge what we know, what we think we know, ask more questions, work together. I think it's a huge, huge opportunity for us. And I'm really pleased that the trust doesn't feel like it has to back down. 
like it's just going to keep going um yeah I mean it's clear what side I'm on obviously (laughs) um but it does make me sad to see how divisive history can be because it just shouldn't be like that I I guess it comes back to this identity thing like what you were saying that history informs our identity Mm -hmm. because the argument for shutting this down is that it's an attack on Britishness but then, mm. yeah, then I, I sit there and go, I am British. And until I was in my early 30s, I didn't even comprehend that the reason we had the British Empire and the reason our country is so rich and innovative is as a result of slavery. Mm-hmm. It just never even occurred to me, which I was just like, how, how could, because we learned about slavery in America in school but never in our own country. Yeah. Yeah, and we do the civil rights movement in the US, but we don't do the civil rights movement here, right? Racism is somebody else's problem. It's not our problem, um, even though we invented it, literally invented it. Um, Isn't it interesting how that language <laughs> has evolved? Yeah. Like in school, we learn about American civil rights and American slave trade. Yeah. We do not learn about the British part in that or at least our generation, I'm assuming you're about the same age as me, our generation just yeah. did not have any education on it. And that's no. our history. That is our history. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Black British history is British history, right? It's everyone's. And we should be learning about that. And I, I hate to say it, but it's still the same situation now. Like we still do US civil rights um, and we still do enslavement as something that happens in you know, the deep south, and we don't think about the fact that all of that cotton is what fueled our industrial revolution here. We just, because if we make that connection, then we're going to have to answer some really difficult questions. We're going to have to have some really tough conversations. But we need to have those conversations. You know, you can try and avoid it as long as you want to, but eventually, you know, it's all coming out now. And children have a right to know these things. They absolutely, they, yeah, they do. They really mm-hmm. do. You think about it, I, I love, love a good cup of tea. But the reason we have tea is because mm-hmm. we took over India. Exactly. And enslaved an entire nation. That's just, to me, the reason that I love Yorkshire tea so much is as a result of that. Yeah, of course. And, and I think a lot of people who want to shut these conversations down one of the reasons that they use is that you know this isn't about making you know British people feel bad and 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 it really isn't no it isn't it's just about like I say we've got this jigsaw and we've not got all the pieces and it no one's asking white people white British people to feel bad it's not about them nobody cares (laughs) you know that happened ages ago the point is what are we going to do with that information now we're going to own that and say, actually, the legacy of colonialism is still here. We are still dealing with it. What are we going to do about it now? White people, what are you going to do about it? You started it. Now you've got to fix it. And, yeah, it's hard work. But, it's yeah, it's, it's, I would never want anyone to feel bad about these things. It's just a question of how are you going to deal with it now, right? You know, you don't have to feel guilty, but you have to own these things that our ancestors did. And think about ways to put them right, because we are still living those legacies. Whether people want to have that conversation or not is totally irrelevant. So what can people do, especially like people listening to the podcast that, you know, the businesses that want to make a difference in the world and do good, what can they do to make a difference, to stand up for 
more of uncovering of history and stand up for the stories that are being told that might make us feel uncomfortable? Um, that's a good question. I think I think there's a lot of things that we can we can all do. Little little steps that we can do. One thing is that you can support global majority historians. Right? You can support Black historians, Asian historians, like them on social media, follow them, share their posts, buy their books, listen to their podcasts. Um, if you have children, maybe have a conversation with school and say, okay, what, what are you doing for Black History Month? What are you doing for Roma History Month? Um, what's on the curriculum this year? Could we make it a little bit more diverse? Could we do this? And, and really also have those questions with yourself, you know, challenge what you think you know. Maybe maybe get on Google Books and have a little read of something different. Um yeah, just ask questions and, and, and don't be afraid of the answers. You know, don't feel like you have to feel guilty about it. But I think learning, learning as well that the inequalities that exist in the UK here, like they all have historical precedent. So educate yourself on that. You know, how did how did racism come about? You know, because in the Middle Ages, for instance, there was no word for race. People didn't categorize others in that way. Um, you know, racism is an invented thing, race, the concept of race, how some races are superior um, and how some are inferior. All of this comes about in the 17th and 18th centuries as a way of justifying enslavement and, and practices like that. So learning about those things um, and being able to make that connection between the present day is really important. And share that information with other people. You know, if you're on social media, share it support those people who are doing this kind of work as well see I find that I find that bit really interesting because I didn't realize that racism is more of a modern construct Mm -hmm. yeah but then when you think about it as humans we've been moving around the world since the dawn of humanity we have there's evidence of like uh, the the Vikings in America and people from Africa in the UK didn't they find some bones in the south of England like 10 years ago that showed this person had come from Africa and like this movement around the world has always existed it's not a new thing no no the concept of what it means to be English is not what everyone well certain groups wanted to be this concept that there are, you know, um, that were these kind of Anglo-Saxon, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, white people, like, it's just not true. Um, it really isn't. Like, there's been a constant um, African presence in this country since the Roman Empire. Um, there was all kinds of people moving around. Um, again, you can access a lot of these records online for free. Teaching yourself about that, and and when you hear someone making those comments, you know about how Englishness essentially is whiteness. You know, say to people, "Are you, are you sure about that?" Are you, because you know what I heard is this. What I know is this. Um, it's all about education, I think, and I think this is the just the, in history. It's the perfect time to do it. That's good. Um, I've got two more questions for you. Mm-hmm. One is, what's the best question you've ever had from a child? It's chuckling when reading this because I know what the kind of questions children ask. Oh yes, um, Miss What's a Turnip is certainly the most one of the most memorable ones. <laughs> Probably the best question I ever had was um, teaching the Norman Conquest. The Middle Ages is is another happy place for me. Um, 
so much so that I have my own copy of the Bayeux Tapestry. No way. Obviously, of course I do. Uh, Which I bought when I went to see it back in my word, like, oh, three. Like, I've had it, I've had this thing for years. So as soon as I started my teacher training and I knew we were doing the Norman Conquest, I was like, right, well, she's coming with me. And this thing is long. I mean, it will fit around um, the classroom walls. Like, I would blue tack it on when we we did the tapestry. Uh, but it's not very big. So I had a lesson with year seven and we had to do a lesson on the Bayer Tapestry and the department had given me like, you know, some crappy pictures of it. And I was like, no, nah, that's not going to fly. The, the, the tapestry is coming out. So I blue tacked it around the room and went down to the science department and borrowed 30 uh, magnifying glasses so they could just kind of have at it, wander around the room, go find things because the tapestry's got three sections. So the main story kind of happens in this middle panel that's talking all about William and Harold and uh, and the battle, you know, of Hastings itself. That's not the interesting bit, though. The interesting bit is the upper and lower border section because there is just some real weirdness going on in there. And I know, and I knew then, that there are 93 penises there hidden away. <laughs> so... <laughs> So we get these little magnifying glasses out. You know, the kids are having a great time, having a field day. I've told them to look for certain things. Um, we're going to piece together the story of 1066. We're going to do all this, you know, there, there's there's some method in the madness. Um, but I'm waiting because I'm thinking someone's going to see one of these, you know, any minute. It's going to happen. And I'm just waiting a little smile on my face. And it happened, hand up. Miss, is that a willy? <laughs> <laughs> So that's the best question that I've ever been asked. Because although it seems ridiculous that I would encourage your children to find that, it and maybe slightly inappropriate, <laughs> the point is that leads into a really serious question about power, right? There's no... The phallic symbol is a symbol of power, no matter where it's found, no matter what time, what space, and the conversation, even with an 11-year-old, that you can have about that is really interesting. And that's the best question I've ever been asked. So who sewed? I, I know nothing very much about the bio tapestry. Who sewed it? Who sewed all those penises? Into well, it? here's the interesting thing. Um, we, I was always told that it was made here and it was made by women. Um, and of course, it's not a tapestry, it's an embroidery, weirdly. Um, but there was a professor from Oxford about two years ago who counted all these penises, found 93, and used that as a basis for a new argument that it couldn't possibly be women who made it. It must have been men because, of course, women, you know, we we never do anything like that. I mean, we're, you know, we're so <laughs> fragile. So, which, of course, I've attacked uh, viciously because that's just rubbish. Um, so I still believe um, wholeheartedly, there's no evidence to suggest otherwise, that it wasn't made by women here in England and then taken to Bayer to be displayed in the cathedral because it fits their cathedral perfectly. Um, so, yeah, so they made it. The question is, why did they stitch 93 pieces on? We'll never know. Uh, <laughs> I think they were having a laugh. They could well have been having a laugh. They could well have been taking the mick. Um yeah, that's one of the things that keeps me awake at night. <laughs> <laughs> what I like most about this conversation, though, is my son is going to go visit that in, the, oh, in May. So excited. So I am going 
to probably tell him to look out for it. All 93 of them. There's really cool, like, mythical beasts on there as well. Like, there's griffins and just really interesting things in the border sections. It's Yeah, it's really – you could spend days on it, like I have many times, but you could. You really could. That's good because that is, like, his low point of his trip as far as he's concerned, going to visit his tapestry. <gasps> well, it's just because we never teach relevance. Like, if you told children that – um, you know, the, the Norman Conquest is the reason why you know somebody called John and you don't know somebody called Wolfnoth. You know, if you told them it's the reason that 30% of our the words that we use, we use, you know, most of our language, the English language is actually French because of that. You know, it it's still has such an impact. The North-South divide is one that you and I spoke about. That was the, like, was so enlightening. Seriously, like, if you made that the basis, those three points, the basis of your scheme of work on, on 1066, I mean, that's a whole different ballgame, isn't it? Putting relevance at the heart of that. I mean, I could go into that north-south divide thing with you because I feel like a conflicted northerner living in the south. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, it's, yeah, it's, it's all there and... It changed the landscape. I mean, it's the reason you go visit castles. Well, I visit castles on the weekend. Like, we didn't even have them before 1066. It's literally scarred the the environment. You know, it changed everything. And that is, you know, I've taught 1066 a few times at different schools. And when I look on the system at the lessons, I'm just like, where is all this? Where is the good stuff? The story? Where is the bit that children can really hook into? Where's the one conversation? Of the, one of the few things, facts I remember about that, and it's because I learned it as an adult, is that the actual battle didn't take place in battle. It took place in what's mm-hmm. now a roundabout. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah. And I just think that's, that's so that's so very British to have built accidentally built a roundabout over an important battlefield <laughs> and not <laughs> realise. Yeah, it is. It really is. Um, yeah, it's. It's so different when you start to put in those little points like that, isn't it? You get such a different story. And when we say to children, you know, why are there no women on this tapestry? You know, that just opens up a whole new kettle of fish, whole new set of questions. Why are there no black people here? Because they were living here. What happened to them? And I just, yeah, that's what I'm trying to do, you know, change the questions that we ask. And that's brilliant. And it's something that we'd never considered because, I don't know, did women battle? I would imagine working class women were sent into battle. Well, I the think... need them. Uh, they were certainly massively impacted by it. Um, no question whether they fought or not, then they would have lost loved ones in that. You know, aristocratic women were all of a sudden married off to people who didn't even speak the same language as them. Um, you know, because there's this change from Saxon aristocracy to this Anglo-Norman aristocracy. You know, there's huge changes going on, but we focus so much on things like the Doomsday Book, um, which, again, like, kids don't care about tax. It's not, it's not relevant. Why do they care? They don't care about the big book. Um, yeah, it's... I remember Michael Gove, you know, when he redid the GCSEs talking about I want a knowledge-rich curriculum. And yeah, that's great. But you have to remember that the knowledge you choose is based off what you think is important, right? You choose knowledge that resonates with you. You're a white privileged man. So guess what kind of knowledge he's going to choose? The knowledge that reflects and supports and affirms 
his identities as a white privileged man. That's not the knowledge I choose. It's not the knowledge you might choose either. And I think being really honest about that is, again, totally okay. But it should have happened. That conversation should have happened. And we I see it all the time in the curriculum. I don't just review in history. Like I said to you, I review different subjects. And I just see the knowledge and worldview of the white privileged man repeated across all of them for the most part because knowledge and what is valued is subjective. And, yeah, we need to appreciate that. I think, like, to, to this, I only ever really appreciated, I think it's Sandy Toxvig who brought this one to my attention, um, and she said she was, le- she was on some course and the historian said, here's an example of early man's calendar. Mm-hmm. You know what's going. I do. Except what man marks 28 days. Exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah. And I think that was like, that was my light bulb moment of, oh my God, why is it early man's calendar? Because where is the, without women, you wouldn't have that man to be saying exactly. it's his calendar. Yeah, and it always, you know, historically speaking, women, are, in England at least, have always formed the majority, like the moment 52%. Um, yet we're always like sidelined. And I'm like, hang on a minute. There were more of us than, than there were men. Like, why isn't our story, you know, from stage and centre? I don't understand it. And again, it's this power play. It's this um, history being politicised, it's hap- it happens all the time. You know, it's been happening since the beginning of time, since the history was created, as soon as people started writing things down. The very first histories were histories of kings. It was used to kind of glorify male leaders. And to some extent, I don't think that's really changed. It's not. It's why I didn't do history in school. I found it so boring learning yeah. kings and queens and dates. And There's so much more to it. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm definitely... Uh, something I'm looking at in the new year now is actually teaching history lessons for grown-ups that's really exciting and yeah bringing those stories front and center and kind of challenging what people think they know about certain things trying to raise that historical consciousness get people to relate the past and the present so that's exciting do that I'll attend them yay right my last question for you because it's only fair to ask what is the best question you've had from an adult but I'm giving you an out here if you want to tell me the worst question you've ever had from an adult (laughs) um the worst question I've had a lot of bad questions of questions that hurt my soul include (laughs) what happened in 1066 it's just devastating to me that people don't know that um and the probably the worst one that I've had quite a few times and the most kind of infuriating one to some extent is why are you trying to rewrite history I'm not there's again history's not a finite resource there's plenty of room for everyone I'm just trying to take away some of that power play that is it is in there um and try and open up broaden those perspectives but yeah I, I have been asked that more than once why are you trying to rewrite it why are you trying to say bad things about Churchill and it's like, oh, I'm not really. I'm just trying to say, you know, it's not all about Churchill. We had that conversation in this house last week because the kids were asked, they've got a Churchill toy dog, and they were asking, was Churchill the person named after the dog? <laughs> and I was like, no, sweetheart, it's the other way around. 
And then I had to go into who Churchill was and I was like, but there's more than one side to this story. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I was like, let's do some research online. So that's a really Perfect. interesting conversation to have. With. Yeah. I do like that she thought he was named after the dog. That's amazing. <laughs> that's amazing. But I'm so glad to hear that you did, you know, you took that opportunity to say, you know, because we're not, we're not like 2D people. Like we've got good bits, bad bits. We've got things we don't do well, things we do well. And and it's not an attack to say Churchill at times wasn't a great person, did some pretty bad things. Um, it's about that, having a rounded view. It's actually more accurate. This is why I don't understand why people get really upset about it. It is more accurate to be that way, to investigate as much as possible. Awesome. Right. Thank you so much for your time today. It's been amazing. I've learned so much. Good. Thank you for having me. Thank you. I really appreciate it. I really appreciate your support as well. I just want to say a massive thank you to Kay for spending her time with me on this podcast. It really was incredibly interesting. And I hope you got a lot out of it. Now, every week I send out the Thursday brew, which rounds up what my guests are chatting to me about over a virtual brew in these podcast episodes and uh, if you want to join in with the community over on the Thursday Brew you can join up in the links in the show notes thank you so much for listening I hope you got as much learning out of this episode as I did it really was enlightening for me and I will see you in a couple of weeks when I will be having a virtual brew with Cara from Cara and the Sky, which is an awesome vegan knitwear brand. Thank you so much for joining me. Oh, 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 oh